Beloved, if you've been here for the last year or so, you know what to do right now. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. And we're going to begin reading this morning in verse 9. But before we stand and read from the Word of God, I want to just speak to you for a few moments about what we're looking at here when we look at Romans 12. Because sometimes it can be very difficult to sort of group these commands into a nice, neat package. And what I mean by that is this, is that the exhortations in verses 9 through 13, you know, are generally seen to be primarily concerned with how we live amongst the body of Christ. And then we look at verses 14 through 21 as to how we're to live among the world. And then we see that there's some overlap. And so we're not really sure what to do. However, there is one commonality that all of these commands slash exhortations of Romans chapter 12 share. And it's this, the common thread that runs through all of them, that runs through all of them, is that they are fundamentally impossible to truly fulfill apart from the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit at work in us through the life-giving power of God. Amen. And I want to emphasize this for a moment because I fear that sometimes, not sometimes, many times, especially in Reformed churches, The emphasis on holiness is a very wooden thing. The emphasis on godliness is a very wooden thing. It can many times be boiled down to certain externals that we sort of vote on as a congregation. I mean, not actually, but but we kind of have an opinion on this. These are the things, these externals that we want to see from one another if they're to be a part of the tribe, right? And there's much that people can do in terms of religion externally. That never actually touches their heart. And these commands. These exhortations in Romans 12. Go to the heart, don't they? They go to the heart. Without the Spirit of Christ active in us, without Him transforming our minds and our hearts and shaping and molding our our thoughts and our desires and our character and our actions by the Word of God, without Him giving us the strength to obey the inspired Word of God, we can't possibly fulfill these commandments. Isn't that true? And it's foolishness to think that someone who is not a Christian, who hasn't truly been born again, it's foolishness to think that that someone who's not a Christian can live and act as one who has been delivered from spiritual bondage or would even care to. And I would submit to you that that is the folly of religious behavior modification. That's why Paul gives us this. Then we look at this text. And we say to ourselves, are these things true of me? And if they are true of me, how do they become more true of me, right? 
How do I become more and more conformed to these commandments? That's the idea. And so I want us to remind, I want to remind you of this as we get into this text this morning. I, I want to remind you as we look at these commands that we need to keep two tensions, two truths, I mean, in equal tension and proper tension to one another. We need to keep two truths in proper tension. One is this. No one, listen to me now, no one is saved by obedience to these commands in Romans 12. Nobody. Nobody's saved by obedience to these commands. We are saved by, what? The righteous life and the sacrificial death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved because God the Son entered human frailty and human weakness in His incarnation and because in our place He lived a life of perfect obedience to the will of His Father. He fulfilled the law and the prophets. He kept the commandments. He suffered rejection. He suffered opposition. He suffered betrayal and condemnation at the hands of godless men. And then at a time of his choosing, according to the eternal will of the Father, he went to the cross, not unwillingly, but in order to lay down his life because of his great love and his mercy for his bride given to him in eternity past, so that he might bear our sins in his own body on the cross. He suffered the wrath of God on our behalf, suffered death, rose the third day, is exalted now, right, in the heavens as King of kings and Lord of lords. So the repentance and forgiveness of sins might be proclaimed in his name and be received through faith in him alone, right? It's faith in Christ alone that saves us. We're supernaturally saved by the grace of God. However, however, that's just the first truth that we need to keep in mind. And the second one, beloved, is this. Our obedience to these commands, our earnest desire to pursue conformity to Christ and obedience to His commands is one of the essential marks, hear me now, is one of the essential marks of a true spirit-wrought salvation. Correct? Sanctification follows true justification, does it not? That's the teaching of the Word of God. A Christian's a, a new creation and and with a new heart and a new spirit. In fact, it's an essential part of the new covenant in Christ as the Lord expressed through the pen of Ezekiel. When Ezekiel wrote these words from the Lord, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, right? So we need to keep these two things in proper tension in our minds as we approach Romans 12. That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And that true salvation always produces fruit. It produces real and growing conformity to Christ as we actively obey God's commands, right? We believe the gospel by God's grace. And we live out the implications of that faith in the gospel by God's grace. Are you with me? Are you with me? So then let's stand and read together. Romans chapter 12. And I can't remember if I told you we'd start in verse 14 or verse 9, but we're going to start in verse 9. 
This is the Word of God. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, or give thought, but give thought to do that which is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You can be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach these words this morning, my prayer, Lord, is that you will instruct us, that you'll teach us that, Holy Spirit, you would be our instructor and that our hearts would be in a posture of desiring to not only hear your word, Lord God, but to do it. Not only to hear these commands, but to understand them. And Lord, to respond with a glad desire to do all things in a way that pleases you. We bless you and we thank you for a certain and a secure salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father God, that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And we thank you, too, for the gift of the Holy Spirit by which you can form your people into the image of your Son, who is the firstborn of many brothers. I pray, Father God, that we'll hear... These words this morning, this command from Scripture, and say yes and amen, and then seek to do it. Please grant me the grace and the, Father, the wisdom and the strength that I need in order to preach this word in a way that's pleasing in your sight and that is obedient and faithful to the whole counsel of God. I pray, Lord, that you would empty me of myself and that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit and that I would be an instrument in your hands for the praise of your glory. And I pray too, Lord, 
that you would move amongst us this morning in this congregation. Father, that our hearts would be soft and that they would be receptive to the seed of God's word and that you would bring forth much fruit in our souls as a result. Thank you, Lord, for all of the ways in which you are worthy to be praised. Thank you, Lord God, that you have revealed yourself to us and that you have shown us a grace that is greater than our sin. We bless you and we give you all glory now in Christ's name. Amen. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Beloved, I think if we're honest, we would have to confess that this commandment is among the most challenging commands in Scripture. In fact, as I was studying for this sermon this week, as I was exegeting this text and meditating upon it, I shared this with my family. I was personally convicted. I needed to stop what I was doing. And I needed to repent before the Lord for all of the ways that I have failed to obey this command. So when I stand before you preaching this morning, I'm not standing up here as one that does this perfectly, because I do not. But I am standing before you as one who desires to do this faithfully and perfectly. The reason this command is so difficult for us is because it is so completely antithetical, so completely opposite of our natural inclinations. I want you to think about this, beloved. We are by nature self-protective people, are we not? We are by nature self-preserving. We naturally want to defend ourselves, don't we? Don't we? We naturally want to defend those whom we love. Sometimes the, the impulse to defend those whom we love is greater than even defending ourselves, isn't it? That's just our default position. And so these words come to us as a shock to our natural sensibilities. And many times we try to find the loophole to this text. Now I want to make sure we understand. I want us to guard, I want to guard ourselves from the error this morning as we consider these words. I, I want to make sure we understand this. I'm not, we're just going to rip verse 14 out of its context. This text does not, and I know there's some guys that teach this, this text does not forbid proper self-defense. It doesn't forbid the protection of the innocent. It doesn't say that you can't be a police officer or serve in the military. Neither does it teach that you should silently endure physical or or sexual abuse. It's not saying that you can never protect yourself or seek legal protection from your persecutors. In fact, Paul himself sometimes allowed himself to be persecuted and then at other times sought legal protection. And he did so 
in accordance with what would be best to serve the interests of the kingdom of God. When the Lord Jesus Christ was falsely tried before the Jewish high priest, and he was struck by one of the high priest's officers for his answer that they did not like, Jesus didn't just take it. He said, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Do you remember the Lord coming to the defense of the woman who washed his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair before then kissing and anointing them, right, with, with an ointment from an alabaster, an, an, an alabaster flask? And he said to Simon, her accuser, Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 44, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loves much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. So this text does not address every situation as it regards persecution or difficulty with the people around us. But what it does address is this, beloved. It addresses the posture and the desire of our hearts. It addresses the posture and the desire of our hearts. That they should not grow narrowed and hardened against those who now are our enemies or are the enemies of God. And this command, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, it flies in the face of our natural disposition. The desires of the flesh and the way of the world. Think about it. In a fallen world, if someone hates you, what do you do? You hate them back. If they do you wrong, you get even. If someone hurts you, you cut them off. You write them out of your life. You ignore them. You avoid them. You unfriend them. You speak evil of them to other people. You put them on blast on your Instagram account. If someone abuses you, you wish bad for them. It's normal. Our natural default position, like I said earlier, is self-preservation. It's self-protection. It's retaliation. And that's why what the Lord commands through Paul in this text is a supernatural response to persecution. It's a supernatural response to our enemies. And he gives us this command because it is intrinsic to the character of the one we call Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, before we even begin to look at this command and apply it to ourselves, I want us for a moment to consider how this commandment was embodied by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I want you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we'll begin reading the second half of verse 20. We need to see this together. This embodiment of this command in the, Lord, in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what he says. What Peter writes. He says, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. Now, what I want us to see here, what do we need to see from these words that, that Peter writes? Well, Peter is telling us that not only is Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior, but his life, the way that he lives, serves as an example for us. That is, he's saying this, we're to look at Jesus and we're to look at the way that he lived and find there a pattern for our own lives. We're to see how he lived in this sinful world. And then we are to follow in his steps because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We, we have living in us the very Spirit of Christ. And so we can walk as he walked, right? Now Peter begins here by underlining the absolute certainty that if we do good in this world, that if we walk in righteousness and we walk in uprightness, we will suffer persecution. Jesus did and so will we. But notice how Peter emphasizes the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ was innocent of sin, that he was blameless and perfect in both action and speech. Here's why he's doing that. He wants us to understand that there were simply no grounds for any legitimate accusations against Christ. There were no grounds for persecution. And that's important, and that's essential for us to see. In every way, he was holy and righteous before Father God and before man, and yet he was reviled, wasn't he? Wasn't he? He was reviled. He suffered for doing good. But he didn't revile in return, nor did he threaten his persecutors. Instead, he continued entrusting himself to the Father who judges justly. That's what Peter says. Now, many times, when we hear those words, we take them and we apply them exclusively to Christ's passion, to the events of his trial and crucifixion, to the last week of his life. But to do that, beloved, is to miss the point, and it's to miss the weight of these words. This description of Christ being reviled, this description of of Christ, you know, of, of, of suffering, listen to me, this description of him, is a description of the whole of his life, and particularly his ministry. 
I want you to think about it, man. All manner of evil was spoken about Christ, wasn't it? If there was anyone that was persecuted, that was reviled, it was Christ. It was Jesus. He was called the illegitimate son of Mary. They said he's possessed with a demon. They said he's a servant of Beelzebub. They said he's a sinner and a drunkard. They said he's an insurrectionist. They said he's a madman. How many times did they seek Christ's death? Over and over. Christ suffered in ways that we can't even begin to imagine simply because he was holy and righteous and good and a wretched and in a sinful world. And we're sinners. And the sinfulness of the world doesn't strike us as it did Christ. And yet he didn't respond in self-defense. He didn't respond by reviling those who reviled him. He did not threaten his persecutors, but rather he entrusted himself to the Father. He remained sinless and blameless. Why? Here's why. So that he could be the spotless, sinless sacrifice that our salvation required. Now, I want you to follow this. Peter tells us, in the context of Christ as our Redeemer and our example, he says that he bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Notice what he emphasizes. He's not ignoring the fact that Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might be forgiven and saved and justified. He knows that part of the gospel. But he's taking it to the matter of our personal conduct, isn't he? As a result of our redemption. That we would die to sin and live to righteousness. And what he's getting at is that Christ saved us so that we might live as he lived. Amen? Sometimes people have an issue with, you know, the the, the concept of God's grace in salvation. Because they say, well, if you preach grace too much, you're going to have people that are going to take grace to its limit and they're going to use it as an excuse for sin. And you know what? That's true. But the people that do that will do so in defiance of the teaching of the Word of God. Simply because somebody might take an essential doctrine of Scripture and deform it according to their own fallen standard doesn't mean that we stop preaching the essential doctrines of Scripture. If we did that, if we say, well, you know what, if somebody takes it to an extreme, we're not going to preach it anymore. If we did that, there'd be nothing to preach. Are you hearing me? There'd be nothing to preach. What he's getting at is this. Christ saved us so that we might live as he lived in every way. But particularly what is in view in this text, in in 1 Peter chapter 2, is this refusing to revile and threaten. 
The refusal to curse those who persecute us for faithfulness to Christ. Jesus refused to do that. He refused to curse those who persecuted him in order that we might be blessed with the salvation that only he can provide. Because here's the kicker. The truth is that before the grace of God broke into our lives, into your life, if you're a Christian, openly or secretly, to a greater or to a lesser degree, we all rejected and reviled Christ and we all contributed to his suffering on the tree. Isn't that true? But rather than cursing us, Rather than cursing us, Christ blessed us by His saving love. We were straying like sheep. But Christ brought us back to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And now we must live as He did and follow His example. We're not to revile and threaten those who persecute us, but bless them, entrusting ourselves to the Father who judges justly, just like the Lord Jesus Christ did. So, and this is important, Not that the other stuff wasn't, but understand what the Lord commands of us here is nothing more than that which Christ himself did. So then let's examine this command that Paul, the Apostle Paul gives to us. Look at it again, Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Now, again, the the underlying certainty of Paul's words, just as it was with Peter, is that if you faithfully follow Christ in this world, in this God-hating world, you're going to suffer persecution. If you're not suffering persecution, if you're not getting any pushback for your faith in Christ, it may be that your faith in Christ isn't what you think it is. And we talked about persecution a little while back when we studied, you know, verse 12. So I'm not going to go into all of this again. But I do want to just emphasize once again that the persecution that Paul is talking about is that which is explicitly tied to our faith in Christ. Okay? To our faithfulness to gospel truth because of our character as a result of the saving work of Jesus in our lives. It's not persecution for our hypocrisy. If we act like hypocrites, we ought to expect to get persecuted. It's not persecution because we are needlessly offensive. You don't need to be needlessly offensive. The gospel is offensive enough to fallen man, right? It's persecution because of Christ. It's because you're not like the world. It's because you don't value the things the world does or chase after, the things that the world chases after. It's because your values and your life and your devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ convicts them. That's the source of persecution. It's the persecution that comes from a world that hates God. And because you love him and you represent him, you're the most convenient target. If they can't hit God, they can hit you. And persecution takes a bunch of different forms, doesn't it? It can be open or it can be subtle. It can be physical persecution and imprisonment or it can be things like slander and mockery and revulsion and ostracism and accusations and cancel culture and all that. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay, we're going to be persecuted. And the way that we respond to persecution for the sake of Christ, the posture of our hearts toward our persecutors, Paul says, is this, bless those who persecute you. The posture of our hearts ought to be to bless them. And what's that entail? What does that mean? Let's put some meat on those bones. What, what, what is blessing someone who's cursed you mean? Well, depending on the context, context it can mean a lot of different things. But in this case, Let's let the Lord Jesus Christ flesh it out for us a little bit. He says later on in Matthew chapter 5, You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, so how then... If In light of those words, do we bless those who persecute us? Well, one of the things that Jesus says here is that we do good to them. Just like the Lord does good to the just and the unjust and the good and the evil by sending them rain and by making His sun to rise upon them. You do them good as much as is within you to do. You do that by speaking God's truth to them. By speaking the truth of God to them, by praying that God would bless them by opening their blinded eyes and make giving life to their dead souls and bringing them to saving faith in Christ. That's what you do. You don't let their persecution, persecution deter you from ministering to them in the way that they might despise what they most need. You pray for them. You speak the truth of God to them. You remain faithful to God's Word. By blessing, Paul just means genuinely and sincerely praying for and seeking the well-being of your persecutor. Chiefly, he means asking God to save the one who has mistreated us, which is the greatest blessing of all. Bless them, Lord. Now, Okay, <laughs> I can see, we can see, can't we? This, this, this command sets a pretty high standard for us, doesn't it? Doesn't it? It sets a Christ standard, doesn't it? You see, here's what I want us to see. Because we often will stop here and pat ourselves on the back and think we've, com- we've, we've been faithful to obey this command. But Paul is not saying that we should simply refrain from retaliation. We should. But that's not what he's saying. He's not saying, you know what, just ignore them. Be the bigger person. Where did that even come from? Be the bigger person. Why is it the bigger person? Why is bigger always better? But be the bigger person. 
Just grin and bear it. Or ignore them. They're just noise. Or gut it out. Or just don't even think about it. Maybe forgive them after a manner or, and just move on. That's not what Paul says, is it? Is it? Is it? It's more than that. Well, isn't it virtuous for me to just ignore them? Isn't it virtuous for me to just ignore the haters? I mean, I'm not Stephen Furtick. I'm not making a video, hey, haters. I'm not doing that. Isn't that enough? No. Not to be obedient to the Word of God. It isn't. We've got to actively seek their good. That's what it means to bless those who persecute you. Actively seek their good by praying for them and speaking God's truth to them with patient determination and love. Hoping, praying that God will open their blinded eyes like He did yours. We're to pray for their salvation. And seek to model the patience and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, here's the thing. He calls us not to indifference, but to intercession. You with me? Then in the second half of the verse, just so we get it, right? Paul puts it like this. Bless and do not curse them. And why has he got to bring that up? Because he knows human nature. That's why. Don't wish the destruction and the downfall of your persecutors. Don't. Don't wish them evil or rejoice when something bad befalls them. Don't speak evil or delight in thinking of evil things that could happen to them. I want you to be very honest. You don't have to raise your hand. But I want you to be very honest between you and God. How many times have you been persecuted? In all the times, let's say put it like this. In all the times that you've experienced persecution for your faith in Christ, has there ever been a time when you just prayed God would take that person out? No, really. God, take them out. You ever done that? Raise your hand. No, don't. I'll raise mine. I have. It was foolish on my part. People will say, well, what about the imprecatory psalms that David prays? What about those? I mean, isn't that an example of cursing your enemies? Well, let me just suggest a few things to think about here. First, it's important to recognize that imprecatory psalms were judicial. And many times they were national in nature rather than personal in nature. In fact, if you read the life of David, you find out that on a personal level, David often refrained from taking vengeance on his enemies, didn't he? 
But in his capacity as the king of Israel, he did cry out to God to bring justice on evildoers. And we do that after a fashion, even if we don't realize it. You know, when we, when we are praying for God's kingdom to come, but what are we praying for? We're praying that Christ will return and judge the living and the dead, aren't we? And that he will set up his kingdom. He will save his people and judge his enemies. Isn't that what we're praying for? David Tom, or Derek Thomas offers some very helpful thoughts here. Here's what he says. He says, there comes a point when it is right to use those imprecatory psalms. Considering an evil ruler, he says, I'd pray that God would save his soul, but destroy the tyrant. The two can be synonymous. There are occasions when rulers in the world are so wicked and so evil that we might pray these psalms appropriately. But praying the imprecatory psalms needs to be done carefully and with forethought and the occasion needs to be correct. And we may perhaps be there in our nation now. But beloved, what is in view in imprecatory psalms is God's kingdom and his lordship primarily. That's not what's in view here. That's not what's in view here. When Paul tells us to bless our persecutors and not to curse them, his point is that we are not to call down imprecations on people for personal reasons out of individual spite. On a personal level, while cursing and wishing the destruction of somebody else is the natural thing among the ungodly, Paul makes it clear that it has no place among those whom Christ has saved. And again, the command is that so far from wishing or praying that evil might overtake our persecutors and enemies, it's that we must sincerely desire and pray for their good. Now, listen, here's the truth. We hear that. I hear that. I read that. You read that. And that, that's impossible in human strength, in our human strength, in our emotions, isn't it? Isn't it? And that's just the point. You see, beloved, that's just the point. It requires a renewed mind. It requires a heavenly perspective. It requires a yieldedness to the Spirit of Christ who dwells in us. Nothing less than the pattern of God's own grace and mercy is to be the norm for us. And the only the resources of omnipotent grace in Christ are equal to that command. In fact, here's the deal. To bless our persecutors... We need a renewed mind and a renewed perspective, right? We need a renewed mind and a renewed perspective. One that is shaped by God's Word. One that is informed by God's Word. One that is fashioned by our own experience of God's grace. Paul already told us earlier, didn't he? In this chapter, do not be conformed to the image, or do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect, right? Well, what does that look like? Let's think about it. 
To have a renewed, biblically informed perspective that enables us to bless rather than curse. The first thing that we need to do is this. We need to think about how God treated us. How He was gracious to us. And what He has done for us. Right? None of us was born a Christian, right? Right? People that say, I've been a Christian my whole life. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. Sorry. I believed in God my entire life. You may have believed in a God of your own invention your entire life, but you did not believe in the God of the Bible your whole life until God took the scales off your eyes that you might see Him for who He is in the Word of God, right? None of us is born a Christian. We were born sinners, right? We were born enemies of God. We were alienated from the life of God. We were arrogant. We were disobedient. We were rebellious law breakers, right? Read the Ten Commandments. How do you do on that? And there was nothing in us that was noble or praiseworthy. We were ourselves once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Titus 3.3, right? And yet we're Christians now. And that, what? By God's grace, right? We're Christians because God did not curse us because of what we were. But instead, He loved us and blessed us in spite of what we were, didn't He? Apostle Paul, or I'm sorry, the Apostle John. First John chapter 4, starting verse 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, right? He loved you when you gave no thought to Him. He loved you when you gave no thought to His commandments, when you were in rebellion against Him, when what you deserved was His eternal judgment and His fury and His wrath. You were given a gift of grace and mercy that you did not receive, right? So when your natural inclination is to curse your persecutor because he deserves it, when your natural inclination is to curse rather than to bless, Stop and ask yourself, what if the Lord had dealt with me like that? What would have become of me? Then second, we need to ask, why do these people that persecute Christians, why do they persecute me like they do? Why do they act like this? Newsflash, they're doing it because they're lost. They're doing it because they're unregenerate. They're doing it because their minds are darkened and because they're ignorant of the truth. They're doing it because they're in the snare of Satan and they're slaves to him. That's why. The God of this world has blinded their minds. Like we once were, they are. Listen, beloved, ultimately our adversaries are not flesh and blood, are they? They're not. I mean, do we believe this or don't we? That our, that our, that our adversaries are not flesh and blood, but rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Is it true or not? Of course it is. Because it's God's word. 
Our persecutors, our human persecutors are those who have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. Now that doesn't give them a pass. Any more than when you were a child of wrath and under the snare of Satan, you got a pass for your sins. It doesn't give them a pass, but it does help us to understand the real issue here. Rather than cursing our persecutors, we've got to pity them. Really? Yeah, really. We've got to pity them. We might pray that they might be delivered from their bondage, from their hatred of God, and from their self-imposed misery of their sin. And that they might receive the grace that we received. You can't effectively speak the gospel to anybody if you don't speak to those who are initially resistant to the truth. And the third thing we've got to see is that ultimately, look, their sin is not against us. It's against God, isn't it? It's against Christ. You remember, don't you, how Jesus confronted Paul, formerly Saul, when he was still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples, and he was on his way to Damascus in order to arrest Christians and bring them back bound to Jerusalem. You remember? He's on his way. The road to Damascus. And falling to the ground. As he beholds the glory of Christ falling to the ground, he hears Jesus ask him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, who's, who's Paul? Saul persecuting. He was persecuting Christians, wasn't he? And he... Paul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Beloved, here's the deal. When they persecute us for the sake of Christ, when they sin against us, we've got to see that they're actually persecuting Jesus. And Jesus is not indifferent to our suffering. He's not a God who's far off and disinterested in us. Fourth, we've got to see that our blessing, rather than cursing our persecutors, may in fact be one of the very instruments that God honors and that he uses to affect and overcome their hardened heart. To break an impenitent, impenitent sinner and bring him to Christ. Well, God sovereignly just changes somebody's heart. Yeah, but he uses means. He uses means. That's why we're commanded to go and preach the gospel. Because God uses the means of the gospel. Right? Right? God uses means. In fact, consider the Lord Jesus Christ. And his response to the thief on the cross. The one thief that got saved. Think about it. At the beginning, both of those thieves were reviling Christ, weren't they? 
You're not sure. They were. Read the Synoptic Gospels closely. They were both reviling Christ. Just like everybody else. But the Lord Jesus refused to return reviling for reviling. He refused to return cursing for cursing. Instead, he prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. His returning, blessing for cursing, in part, revealed Christ's true character as the Son of God and the only Savior. Because men don't act like this, not mere men. And that one thief's heart, I would submit to you, is deeply affected. In fact, Luke tells us what ensued. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him. One guy continued with his railing at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our sins, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Or consider Stephen. When he was praying, as he was giving testimony to the gospel... And the Jewish crowd rose up in anger against him and gnashing their teeth came against him. Remember how he prayed as rocks were thudding into his body when they were stoning him to death. And when Paul was watching on in approval, He prayed much like his master, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And Stephen's prayer was answered, at least to a degree, in the later conversion of Saul of Tarsus. In fact, Augustine expressed it this way. He says, the church owes Paul to the prayer of Stephen. Now, that's not to say that returning blessing for persecution will always result in somebody's salvation. That's not what I'm saying. They might continue to revile you just as the one thief did. I'm not saying that it always results in the salvation of someone, but it may. And we don't have a clue how God will use our proper response to persecution for the sake of of the glory of his kingdom in saving sinners. We don't have a clue. But blessing and cursing and not cursing, it's a matter of Christ-likeness. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of trusting in the Lord. It's a matter of knowing who we are and knowing whose we are. We belong to Christ. And so we act like Christ acted. We, we seek to live as Christ lived. And that means we don't get all torn up. 
and all animated and all self-protective and self-defensive. Whenever we endure what Christ said, we would endure. We don't act surprised. Instead, we see the situation. Through divine eyes, through the grid of the Word of God, we don't seek to get even. They punch you, punch them five times as hard. If they say something bad about you, dox their whole life on Instagram. It's not what we do. The world may do that. That's them. That's not what we do. We don't practice self-protection. We don't practice self-preservation. We don't practice self-defense because our Savior didn't. And if He had, none of us would be saved. Are you hearing me? And so we bless those who persecute us. We pray for them. We do good to them. We speak the truth to them in patient love, desiring that God would open their blinded eyes and unstop their deafened ears and give life to their hardened hearts and bring them to faith in Christ, just like He did us. We bless and we don't curse. Because that's what Jesus did. And He's our Savior and He's our Lord. But you know what? He's our example too. And we need to live according to it. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Is it a challenging command? Yeah. Is it a difficult command? Yeah. But it requires that we die to ourselves. And that we die to self-preservation and self-protection and trying to defend our reputations. And we commit ourselves to God who judges justly and who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Even persecution. Even persecution. You were blessed by a costly and a redeeming love that you didn't deserve. True or false? True or false? And so you can bless others who don't deserve it either. Can't you? Let's not only magnify Christ as Savior and Lord. Let's live in the example that our elder brother has set. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, my prayer this morning is that these words would indeed have purchase in our hearts and in our souls.
it is true, Father, that whenever we read a commandment like this that is so that so requires dying to ourselves and and dying to self-preservation and protection. Whenever we hear commands like this, Lord, it's so easy for us to just try to, I don't know, find a loophole, find the find the the the, the thing that that we can say, well, it's true in this case, but not in mine. And so often we do that to our own detriment, our own foolishness. Father, I pray that we'd hear these words, but more than just hear them. Father, I pray that we'd hear and understand deeply the reason, the rationale. When we were far from you, you had every right to curse us. By our lives and by our attitudes and sometimes openly and arrogantly with our voices. Father, we reviled you. We rejected you. We did not honor you as God. And you could have cursed us, but you did not. And that's the only reason that any of us are saved. Pray you open our eyes, Lord God, to see, to see that, Father, those who persecute your people, they do it because they're lost, because they're blind, and because they should be pitied, that they are still under the snare of Satan. Father, help us to see that sin that's committed against us is really sin against you. And help us to see, Lord God, that you are the one who uses remarkable means. Using persecution, Father, in an evangelistic manner in order to bring people to your son. I pray, Lord God, we'd hear these words and and we would long in our souls as your people to do them. So help us, Lord, to be obedient to your command. I pray these things, Lord, in the name of Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and our example.